Um, but it is, it is good to be with you guys. As Ricky said, we love you guys. We pray for you guys regularly. Um, and I'm encouraged by what God's doing here at your church through you guys. Uh, we're thankful for your presence. Listen, not only in Borger, but in the, in the Texas Panhandle. Uh, as, a, as a guy that's grown up in the Texas Panhandle, I can tell you right now, there is a, a gospel void up here. Uh, you guys probably see that in Borger. We see that in Spearman. Uh, we have people that drive as far away as Booker, which is almost 45 minutes to an hour to come just to hear the gospel preached and proclaimed. We got people coming from Perryton and, and Groover and just other parts around our area because they're just hungry to hear the word of the Lord. Uh, and so we're so thankful for you guys. It's great to have strong gospel-centered churches that we can partner with, that we can uh, work uh, alongside with. Um, and we're in the closing section of the gospel of Mark. And so just very quickly, by way of review, uh, Mark's recording Peter's firsthand account of, of what happened during the life and the ministry of Jesus. Uh, Mark's account is written for a Roman audience in, and it has a Roman audience in mind. And, and the way we know that is there's this distinctive feature that, that Ricky's talked about throughout the book of Mark. It's his use of the word immediately, right? Because the Romans were just people of actions. They didn't dwaddle. They didn't dilly-daddle. It was like immediately they got stuff done. And so Mark's writing in a style and in a way that they can relate to. And the book of Mark's divided up into to three parts. In part one, chapters one through eight, Mark is asking the question, who is Jesus? And throughout the book, I hope you've noticed this, but Mark's trying to force your hand. He's trying to tell you that you have to decide who Jesus is. Either he was who he said he was, or he was just some madman who made some wild claims about being the Messiah, uh, and then he died. Uh, in his book, King's Cross, Tim Keller tells us either you crown him or you kill him, but you don't get to sit back and say, oh man, what a nice guy. Part two, chapters eight, verses 30 through, through chapter 15, verse 39, asks what does it mean for Jesus to be the Messiah? And then part three that Ricky began last week, chapter 15, verse 40 through 16, shows us how Jesus becomes king. So in Mark chapter 16, if you would please read with me starting in verse one. It says, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb and they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. Verse 9. Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. And after these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country. And they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for your word. Father, we thank you so much that, um, that, that you rose again. 
that, that Father, the cross wasn't the end because three days later you came out of the grave showing us that, that what you did for us on that cross, that you paid our debt, that the bill was paid, and that Father, you now are the Messiah who reigns and rules over everything. So I pray today that if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, that the gospel would be proclaimed and that, Father, you would save. Father, for the rest of us, uh, as we enter into the Christmas season, the resurrection is so important because, Father, it's because of this. It's because that you rose again that we have hope, not just in this life, but in for the next life and in, in what's coming. So I pray today that, that as we enter this season, that we would ground ourselves in this reality and that you would give us that hope and that we would set our eyes on Jesus. And it's in your name we pray, amen. How many of you guys ever played Jenga or you enjoy playing Jenga, right? Got some kids back there. Yeah, it's a great game, right? Uh, and the premise of Jenga is, right, you got these tower of blocks and you got to slide a block out one at a time and then you stack it back up on the top uh, and you don't want to be the person to make the tower fall. Um, I love that game. My, my kids found it over Thanksgiving at my in-law's house. Uh, I did remember how hard that game is, though, to put back in the box, especially if you got like a janky Jenga, like you don't have like the like the name brand Jenga, like none of the blocks matched and so, right? But the whole thing is, right, if you take out that one, that one block, you lose everything. Well, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is kind of like a game of Jenga. If you remove the resurrection, if you take it out, if you claim it never happened, then the whole tower is going to come collapsing down. Tim Keller has said that the resurrection is the hinge upon which the story of the world pivots. The resurrection of Jesus Christ has profound implications for how anyone lives. So the resurrection of Christ in the past and the resurrection of human beings in the future have deep practical significance for the present. The resurrection changes the way both death and life are understood and the way they're experienced. So if we take the resurrection out, then we find out that our faith as believers is worthless. Ricky did a great job teaching on the crucifixion last week, right? That the great exchange takes place on the cross as Jesus goes and he bears our punishment. And because of what Jesus has done, those of us who have trusted in him, we're now counted righteous in the sight of God. We are now given positional standing in front of God, which means that now when God looks at us, he no longer sees us, but he sees Jesus' perfect life instead of your sinful life. But if we stop right there, we have no hope for what comes next, right? In Romans 4.25, Paul says, speaking of Jesus, that he was delivered up for our trespasses and he was raised for our justification. In other words, the resurrection is proof that the check Jesus wrote for your sins cleared the bank. That's what he means. So today we're going to look at the resurrection and just being true to the gospel of Mark, kind of like Ricky said last week, we want to move quickly through Peter's account of what happened. And then I want to jump over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 to just ask the question, what if it's not true? Like, like what if Jesus really didn't raise? Well, what does that do to our faith? All right. So if you will, let's look at Mark chapter 16 again. Let's look at verses one through eight. It says again, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb and they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. 
And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He's risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee and there you will see him just as he told you. And they went out. They fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. So at the end of chapter 15, and then again right here at the beginning of chapter 16, in the span of eight lines, Mark records the names of some of the women who witnessed these events, right? We have Mary Magdalene there again. We have Mary, the mother of James and Salome. And it's kind of Mark's way of telling you and I that he's not writing a fictitious account. Mark's saying, I'm not making these things up. Like these are actual people. These actual women were there. And at the time of his writing, they're still alive. And so he's like, hey, if you don't believe me, go find them. Go ask them. They'll tell you the truth that everything I'm writing happened just like I'm putting it down. And so these women, they go to the tomb. They're expecting to see a dead body. And instead they see this angel sitting there, right? The, the stone's been rolled back. It's a large stone. He's sitting there and he's like, man, he ain't here, y'all. Texas angel, right? He ain't here. He's risen and it says that they're shocked. Now Jesus had told his disciples in chapters 8 and chapter 9, eight, chapter 8, 9, and 10, what did he tell them? He told them, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, and I'm going to rise again. And in my mind, I'm thinking, man, like if Jesus told them that that many times, you would think that one of them would have been like, hey, let, like, let's, it's three days later, let's, let's go check this thing out. But no, like none of them are there. And I think the reason is, is that the resurrection was hard for them to imagine. I mean, can we just be honest for a second and say there's probably been times in your life as a believer, I know in mine, that you start going, wait a minute, like this guy was brutally murdered. And then three days later, he just pops out of the grave? I mean, it seems kind of crazy if you, if you think about it. And I know I've had moments in my life where I'm going, man, that's, that's crazy. Like what I say I believe sounds nuts. <laughs> And I think we tend to think that, man, if we were the disciples, man, we wouldn't be like him, right? We had Jesus. He told us he was going to rise again, that we would be there with him, but we wouldn't be. We would be just like him. And see, the disciples didn't have any concept of the resurrection of the dead. They just didn't. I mean, the Greek culture that they were steeped in believed your soul left your body after you died, and that's it. Uh, the, the Jewish culture, not all of them believed uh, in the resurrection. Some of them believed in this vague future general resurrection where the entire world would be renewed, but they had zero concept of an individual rising from the dead. So what I'm saying is they were not so superstitious to believe in something like this any more than we would be. That's why verse 8 ends the way it does, right? That they're shocked, they're astonished, and they didn't tell nobody because they were afraid. Right? They're not going to go around and be like, yeah, that dude, he was, he was killed, but he's alive again. Because what? It makes them sound crazy. Like this thing is beyond their wildest dreams that Jesus would rise again. But I love verse 7. The angel says, hey, tell the disciples, tell Peter that I'm going to Galilee. Now, Jesus could have said, hey, I want you to go tell those sorry, no good for nothing disciples that I'm coming to get them. Right? I'm coming to cut them down. I get this is uh, an American movie, right? It would be that classic American revenge movie where Jesus gets shredded, right? And he goes and gets a bunch of weapons and he goes and he hunts down all those people who abandoned him when he needed him most. But instead, through this angel, Jesus communicates to disciples and to Peter, right, who denied him not once, but three times. Jesus says, listen, I see you. I love you. 
I'm coming for you. I want you back. That my death was all part of the plan. That all of this was for you. And and I love this because some of us need to hear that verse today. You need to know that he loves you. That Jesus sees you. That regardless of what you've done, regardless of what is in your past, regardless of what maybe you brought into this room this morning, is that Jesus loves you, that he died in your place for your sins, that he rose again saying that, hey, it was sufficient, it was enough, and he wants you to trust in him today. I love that, all right? Let's look at verse 9. Verse 9. It says, now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. And after these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country. And they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Now, really quickly, most of your Bibles have uh, a little annotation there at the top or whatever that just says um, that that some of the earliest manuscripts do not include verses 9 through 20. Uh, And I I think Ricky told me he touched on this earlier in the series, but I'll just go through this very quickly. Uh, That when biblical scholars try to determine what was in the original manuscripts, right, they look at copies of the text. Like we don't have originals of many of these texts, but we have multiple copies of so many of these texts and so many of these copies line up. I mean, the the language, the verbiage, etc., everything just lines up. It's the same. And so in some of the earliest manuscripts of the book of Mark, it does not have this longer ending. But some of the the, the newer manuscripts that we have have this longer ending. And so, so what we can conclude for verses 9 through 20 is that they weren't original to the original text, but they were added by someone other than Mark. And if you look at that writing style in the last few verses there, you can kind of see that it's a lot different than Mark's writing style. And most translators believe that even though the authenticity is disputed, it does provide a suitable conclusion to the gospel of Mark. Because if it's not there, you just kind of end up with verse 8, right? Where it's like, well, they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. And you're like, well, that's it? And and that terse conclusion would kind of leave out information about the disciples' encounters with the risen Christ and his ascension back to the Father's right hand, which I will talk about next week. So in any case, none of what is written in these verses contradicts Scripture. That's the point. R.C. Sproul tells us that the doctrines that are found in this passage are consistent with what is taught throughout the New Testament. Thus, we can read and study it with confidence and profit. So verses 9 through 11, it's just a short retelling of Jesus appearing to Mary Magdalene. You can go home if you want this afternoon and you can read that in John chapter 20 verses 11 through 18. It's Mark's way or whoever wrote this ending saying, hey, it's a fact, it happened, go ask her, she'll tell you. Verses 12 through 13, it tells the story of Jesus meeting the two disciples traveling seven miles from Jerusalem to the village of Emmaus. You can find that story in Luke chapter 24. So again, Mark or whoever's writing this is letting us know in this conclusion that all this stuff really happened, that Jesus really did uh, rise again, and that people saw Jesus alive. Mary Magdalene saw him. These two disciples saw him. They're still alive. Go ask them. They'll tell you. Paul writes 20 years later in 1 Corinthians, and this is what he says. He says, then he, speaking of Jesus, appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Most of them are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. 
Paul's saying the same thing. Man, some of those cats are dead, but a bunch of them still alive. Go ask them. It really happened. And so it's just a way of letting us know that this is not some hoax, that Jesus really did rise from the dead. Here's the craziest thing to me is that if this really was a hoax and there's this many people that saw him alive, 500 plus saw him alive, like they would have had to have taken this story and they would have had to all agreed that, hey, we're never going to deviate away from this story. Like we're all going to tell the exact same story until the day that we die and then we're going to take the secret with us to our grave. Like that never happens, right? When I was in, in high school, I worked at a pig farm on the outside of Dalhart. And, and every day we drive to the pig farm about 18 miles and we drive back home. Well, one day, three guys in a vehicle were driving back home. We'd had some pigs in the blanket for breakfast that morning. And there was like 15 of them left and they were hard as a rock, right? And so we got it in our head. It would be hilarious while we're driving down the highway to see if we could throw them over the vehicle and hit cars in the other lane, right? And so we're, ah, we're, we're egging this one guy on, right? And he finally throws one, hits a car. Well, about five miles down the road, whip, whip, right? Pull over. DPS is like, listen, we got a report that something was thrown from this vehicle, hit somebody's car windshield, and it smashed the windshield. Which I'm like, dang, I didn't know a pig in the blanket. You know, I mean, there's some velocity on that thing. It must have been that. Anyways, so we're like, oh, man, we don't know nothing about that, right? Like, I don't know nothing about it. Was the DPS officer's really, really smart. So he says, all right, one at a time, let's uh, step out of the car, boys. And he takes us one at a time to the front of the vehicle and he asks us the same question. What happened? Who did it? What do you know? We all get back in. One of us, like nobody told the same story, right? And, and that's just three guys, right? And then we ended up ratting on one guy. Like, oh, he did it. It wasn't us. It was him. Threw him under the bus. But I mean, that's just three guys that couldn't keep their story together. Imagine 500 plus that couldn't keep their story together. And this is just Mark's way. He's saying, listen, all this happened. And so, brothers and sisters, what I'm telling you is that since he's truly risen, it means that the story of the world according to the Bible is true, that we can trust it. That if you believe this story, that Jesus really did come and be born of a virgin, lived the life that you should have lived, died the death that you deserved, took your place, rose again, then it means that your eternal destiny is completely changed. But what if it's not true, right? Flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Man, this, this is a great chapter on the resurrection of Jesus where Paul kind of tackles this question of going, hey, if it's not true, then we lose everything. And, and in the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul's writing to a, a church, a fairly rowdy church that's got all kinds of problems, right? Uh, there's all kinds of issues in this church, but one of the big issues was uh, this, this doctrine of the resurrection. And so what's taking place in the church is that there's many in the church that denied the resurrection, that they said, no, Jesus just died, he's still in the grave somewhere, right? Or, or somebody hauled off the body and they hid the body, they didn't believe in it. Uh, there were others in the church who said, well, yeah, Jesus rose again, but then that doesn't have anything to do with us. That doesn't have anything to do with our own resurrection at the end of life. And so in chapter 15, Paul's going to kind of address really quickly. He just goes, hey, if he hasn't been raised, it changes everything, right? So look with me, if you will, in chapter 15, let's start in verse 12. Paul says, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. 
We are found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. So Paul says, man, if none of this is true, and if Christ hasn't been raised, then first and foremost, all of our preaching is in vain. That, that word vain is, it just means empty or, or hollow in the Greek. So think about this room. If none of you were in here, the chairs were all up, and just the way that it's laid out, right, it would be a very loud, hollow, echoing sound back and forth. So Paul's saying, if Jesus didn't rise from the grave, then that's my preaching. That's Ricky's preaching. That's Rusty's preaching. It's all in vain. We're just wasting our time studying the scriptures. We're wasting our time standing up here and proclaiming the gospel. If Jesus stayed dead and didn't rise, then this whole message that we hold on to is just a waste of our time. But in verse 15, Paul says, I'm not only wasting my time, Paul says, then I'm misrepresenting God as well because I'm, I'm blaspheming. I'm saying things about God that are not true, that Christ is dead, then our message is completely empty. So he's saying if the resurrection isn't true, then we just need to stop preaching, stop worshiping, stop sending missionaries, stop planning churches, stop sharing our faith because it's all just a colossal waste of time. But it's not just true for the preacher, it's also true for those of you who hear the gospel. Paul says that in verse 14. See, if what I preach isn't right, then what you believe isn't true, and then that means your faith is worship, worthless and you're worshiping a dead guy. Your salvation is worthless because in effect, you're saying that God wrote a check for your sins, but then there wasn't enough for that check to clear the bank. So what he did was a total waste of time. And then in verse 17, look what he says. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. So let's go back to our, our analogy of Jenga. If you think you can just slide out that one block and you knock the whole, and not knock the whole thing down, then you're completely mistaken. You're crazy. You're in deep trouble because if Christ has not been raised, then listen, we're all still in our sins. Effectively, we're still lost. Gordon Fee says, by denying the resurrection, you're saying that you really aren't that bad off, that your sins aren't that bad. To deny your future is to deny your past. The death of Jesus for us, including both justification and sanctification, is inextricably bound together with his resurrection. To deny the one is to deny the other. To not believe in the resurrection means we cease to be believers altogether. See, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the ace of spades that it's all over. That the reign of sin and death, the reign of slavery to sin in your life and in my life has been conquered once for all in Jesus Christ. If Christ was not raised, then maybe he paid for all of it. Maybe he didn't. Maybe he paid for some of it. But since he was resurrected, the debt has been paid in full. And because we have a resurrection, we see that Christ is no longer under the curse of death. So therefore, the curse of sin and death has been fully absorbed. So again, listen, great news for some of us in the room today. So for those of you who think, man, I've gone too far. I've done too much. I've hurt too many people. I've left too much carnage uh, in my background. You carry too much shame and you think that, that this church can't be for you or that this place couldn't welcome you or that God wouldn't have you as a son of daughter. Paul's saying, listen, 
Because of the resurrection, those are all absurd lies. That the resurrection is evidence that all of your sins have been paid for in Jesus Christ. Hebrews 7.27 says he has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily. First for his own sins and then for those of the people since he did this once for all when he offered himself up. The book of Hebrews will tell us that the altar's closed and that he's no longer taking offerings for sins. So that means for us as believers that all of our penance, right, all the ways that we think that we're trying to pay God back are kind of confusing to him. Because he's like, I already paid for that. It's been taken care of, right? The bill is paid in full. The check I wrote has cleared and you are now positionally made right with God. Why are you trying to earn what you could never get anyways? But more than that, what Paul's saying is that you're being made right with God as you continue in the faith. That's good news, right? That, that, that all those sins and all those things that still plague us now as believers, Jesus is reminding us, that, hey, I paid for that. And my resurrection is proof that it's paid for. So with all those times that we stumble and we fall, that's all the strength we need to get back up, to keep our eyes on Jesus and to keep moving forward, knowing that he will make you like his son. That one day you will be with Jesus face to face, face, either when you die and stand before him or when he comes back to this earth to get us. And see, Paul's point is is that if we don't believe in his resurrection, then none of this is true. It's not true for the hearers of the gospel. It's not true for the preachers. But listen, in verse 18, he tells us it's really bad news for people who have already died. Look what he says in verse 18. Paul says, then those who who also have fallen asleep in Christ have perished, have perished. So, So if there's no hope for us in this life, then all those who have died in the faith before us, out of luck. So that means when I do funerals or Ricky does funerals, we don't get to comfort people with the hope of living again. We don't get to comfort people with the hope of being united with the Lord first and foremost, right? Because that's really what it's about. And then our loved ones second. There's no hope at all that death is final, the end of the sentence of your life, that the dead who have perished, they're gone. There's no hope. Verse 19, Paul says, "If, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we're of all people most to be pitied. So if you don't believe in the resurrection, your Christianity is only good for this life. So that means that Christianity is just about improving people's lives with this vague general message about God and just go be nice to other people, right? We don't want people to have the sads. We want to be nice to them, right? Paul's saying then then that's good for this life, but if that's all it is, then why even be a Christian? I mean, go be a social justice warrior. Go be a social worker. Go run a nonprofit, dig wells in some third world country. Just go be a good person and make people comfortable on this earth for an eternity in hell. Because if Jesus is dead, then listen, it's game over. Christianity is just a sham. So if the Christian faith is based on an empty gospel and a fraudulent savior, everybody is better off than a Christian. That's why he says we of all men, we're the most to be pitied. That in other words, we're fools if we believe this. And see, the reason it all matters, folks, is that we can't separate the resurrection of believers from the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So if we are in Christ, then his destiny is now our destiny. If we belong to the first Adam, we're dead in our sins and physical death is all that awaits us. If Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, there is no forgiveness of sins. If sins are not forgiven, everything we do at church week in and week out is a complete waste of time. 
If there is no resurrection, the Christian life really isn't even worth our time. That's his point. Because see, the resurrection now changes everything for us. Because we know that this life isn't all that there is. And listen, the biggest area that I think that this changes everything for the Christian is in the area of pain and suffering. As a Christian, we, we view pain and suffering differently, don't we? We do it with an eye knowing that this isn't all that there is. So, so in our life, I'll give you a great example. In our life, we, we have two children with special needs, right? Uh, my, my daughter and my son both have spinal muscular atrophy. You can go look that up later if you want. Basically, just missing a gene uh, that, that helps like neurons fire so that they can build muscle, right? So it's very difficult to build muscle. Uh, it's very hard for them. Uh, one of them, they both get treatment. One of them, we caught it early, so you would never think anything's there. And then my, my little girl um, struggles to, to, to do a lot of different things, okay? But, but, but inside of this, I, I deal with people in the SMA community all the time. And, and in fact, I had a guy call me the other day. I mean, his whole world is, is just this disease and what's going on. And, and, and he just called me in, in tears going, man, I'm doing everything right. We're standing up. We're going to therapies. We're doing all these things. But yet we're still seeing, you know, regression. We're not, we're not seeing things happen. And, and I just broke my heart because in his view, like all he has is, is this, right? That there's no hope for anything else. And so it was just a great opportunity for me to, to be able to share the gospel and say, brother, listen, because of what Jesus has done, this isn't all that there is. That, that one day I, I have hope that all this is gonna get fixed, that all this is gonna be turned around. And I was just able to share the gospel with him and try to get him to get his eyes off of the disease and all the brokenness here to know that there's more coming on the other side. And that's what the resurrection does for us as believers is knowing this isn't all there is. And that's what Paul's getting at is that, man, if Jesus hasn't risen, everything's worthless. But then verse 20, man, this is the best one. Paul says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Some translations, Paul says, but thanks be to God that Jesus rose again and he's alive. And so that means that if we're in Christ, his destiny is our destiny. We will rise from the dead. Those Christians who's gone on before us will rise from the dead. See, when we think about dying, we think we're just gonna go to heaven and just float on a cloud and play a harp, right? Those are all the old cartoons. Or maybe we just kind of got this idea of some disembodied state where we float in ethereal space, but that's really not what it's all about. The hope of the Christian is to be embodied again, that the soul will reunite in praise and service of our Redeemer, that the Bible tells us that we're a material body and an immaterial soul and that upon death, the two parts are separated. Our body goes into the ground and if we're believers, our, our soul goes to be with God. Unbelievers' souls go to a place by such names in the Bible as prison or as Hades. It's a place of just suffering for unbelievers until they stand before Jesus and are sentenced to the conscious eternal torments of hell. And so resurrection refers to the eventual reuniting of body and soul. One scholar refers to the resurrection as life after life after death. In other words, there's another day coming when Jesus will return and our souls will reunite with our bodies. And the big difference is, guys, is we go from a jalopy, janky old body to a Rolls Royce. All right? Our bodies are followed apart. I am a young man still. I am 42, which is like dawn on me the other day. It's middle age now, which is kind of like, oh, all right? But man, stuff is not as easy to do as it was at 30. 
At 25, I got sick over Thanksgiving and used to be like, man, I just throw up and get it over with. I'm ready to roll. Good 24 hours and I'm just like, oh my gosh, right? You and I look around and we see the imprint of a fallen world upon ourselves, upon our friends and our loved ones through physical breakdown and through illness. But the glory of the resurrection of the body, the fact that Jesus has been raised again, has risen again, means that that loved one that you've taken care of with Alzheimer's or dementia, that person that you saw waste away from cancer, maybe your father, a mother, a spouse, a child, there's going to be a day when in Christ all who trust in him and who have been ravaged by horrible diseases will be changed and transformed. That you're going to see them in a glory in a way that you've never seen them before. That, that child with Down syndrome or with autism, you're going to see them with physical and mental powers that you've never seen. That child who died in the womb or at birth or at age four, you'll see them as a young man or woman in the full flower and power of manhood or womanhood. Those who've been harassed by physical, psychological, hormonal, and emotional imbalances, you're going to see them transformed. Those who've been unable to walk, right? They're going to run, right? Me and Lucy, we got it planned. We're going to race, right? She's probably going to beat me. It's going to be a good day. Everything is going to be transformed. Listen, there's going to be relational peace. Don't you want that? I mean, man, our world is so messed up right now, and we're all just like this. And Jesus says, I'm going to take care of all of that. See, Jesus doesn't just want your soul transformed. He wants all of you transformed so that in your whole person, you'll be with him and praise him forever and ever and ever. But the promise of the resurrection is only for those who by faith have trusted in Jesus Christ and his atoning work on the cross and his resurrection proving it worked. So listen, if you don't know Jesus today, you really need Jesus. Don't walk out of this room without getting that nailed down. Brothers and sisters, the resurrection is significant for sanctification. So as we grow in holiness, learning to live in victory over sin, until one day, upon our own resurrection, we'll live forever free from the presence, power, and practice of all sin. The resurrection gives us hope. It's not the way it's always going to be. And that no matter what comes our way, we have hope knowing that on the other side of it is Jesus. So I'm going to pray. If you guys need to talk to somebody, find Ricky, find Rusty after church. They would love to visit with you guys.